0: Shalom, and thank you for listening at Bethemanual.org. At Beth Emanuel, we are proclaiming the vital gospel message of the coming kingdom of heaven. If you share our passion for this message, please support this teaching ministry and messianic community with your prayers and financial contributions. To learn how, click on the Donate tab at Bethemanual.org. We have an important commandment in this week's Parsha, Va'etranan contained in the verses of the Shema. It tells us in Deuteronomy 6:8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. What does this mean? How, how, are you, how do you tie the commandments to your hand and wear it like head jewelry? We observe this through an item called tefillin. And this sometimes gets translated as phylacteries, but that doesn't help because nobody knows what that means except apparently Dungeons and Dragons players. Tefillin are boxes made of leather and painted black. Inside the boxes are handwritten scrolls with four passages of the Torah inside. These are then attached to the arm and the head using leather straps, although not on Shabbat. Today, we typically only wear them during prayer, but in ancient times, people often wore them all day long. Yeshua and his disciples probably went through the entire day wearing tefillin. When you picture Yeshua and his disciples, do you imagine them with tefillin on their arms and heads? Well, why on the arm and head specifically? I mean, the the Torah could have told us to put them on our waist, uh, on our feet, around our neck. But the arm and head seem important. Now, the the Hasidic commentator Svat Ahmed has a, a really nice insight. The head, of course, represents knowledge. And the arm tefillin is inclined toward the heart. Than representing both intention and action. Furthermore, he points out an interesting connection. In the head tefillin, there are four chambers, each containing a separate scroll with a different passage from the Torah. But in the arm tefillin, there's only one chamber, and the same four passages are all written in one scroll and placed in that chamber. The Sfat Emet explains that the four scrolls in the head te- in are like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. They provide the raw knowledge that we need. But those four books are all repeated and collected in one book, Deuteronomy, also known as the Mishneh Torah, the repetition of the Torah. And this repetition of the Torah was given just as the Israelites were poised to enter the land of Israel and put it all into action. And thus it corresponds to the single combined scroll of the arm to fill in, reflecting the hand and the heart. Now the sequence of how you put on to fill in is important. Uh, first we put on the arm to fill in, and then we put on the head to fill in. Why? Well, because the Torah says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and then it says, They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. But should the he- the heart come before the head? Should deeds come before knowledge? Are-, are we really to act before thinking? And this caught my eye as we've been studying a sequence of qualities handed down to us from the tzaddik Shimon Kefa. If you recall, and-, and were with us back in April, during the month of Er, during the counting of the Omer, I drew attention to a list found in 2 Peter chapter 1, where the shaliach presented a a sequence of spiritual progress, the goal of which is to arrive at the entrance of the eternal kingdom. Since entering the kingdom is what we're all about here, it seemed fruitful to take a close look at this list. I showed how similar it is to Musar literature and to other paths of spiritual progress that the sages and rabbis have proposed since ancient times. Then on Shavuot, uh, I went into deep into detail on the first item on the list, and that is faith or emunah. But I clarified that faith is not actually the first step; it's the starting point. Faith, in the biblical sense, is not mere belief or assent to a creed. It's the realization that God intervenes. And not only does He exist, but He is intimately involved in this world and our lives. From this vantage point, we can finally take our first step forward, but we immediately run into something confusing. Let me read the first two steps. It says in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Now, wouldn't you want to start with knowledge? I mean, don't don't you need to know what to do before you do it, you know? Act first, think later. Uh, but before we can understand this, we we have to clearly define that first item on the list, and which the ESV translates here as virtue. It sounds ambiguous. Uh, couldn't all the items on the list be called virtue? Now, looking at all at other tr- English translations, a common alternative translation is excellence, uh, channeling the energy of Bill and Ted. Um, And while many uh, translations supply the qualifier moral excellence, um, NIV and NRSV keep it simple, calling it goodness. Uh, Some less conventional translations include integrity and worthiness. uh, But warning, I'm I'm about to do a little – language nerding. I'm going to show my homework a little bit so that you can see the research process. And If you don't care, you just want the conclusions, feel free to, uh, I don't know, nod off for a little bit or skip ahead. The Greek word here for virtue is areti. Now, it's not your regular word for simple goodness. Let's try a few things to home in on its true meaning. If possible, we want to get it into its native Hebrew, which opens up for us all kinds of connections. So how do we get this Greek word into Hebrew? Well, one approach is to consult some classic translations of the New Testament into Hebrew and see if they help. Uh, the Salkinson translation renders it as tzedakah, which c- could be understood as righteousness, or justice, or charity. But, you know, if this were the intent, you know, there's another common Greek word we would have expected to see. Um, Franz Delich, one of my favorite New Testament translators, attempts to add some nuance by rendering it as ma'asehatzdaka or the doing of righteousness or doing charity. A bit clumsy, to be honest. Another great translation comes from the Bible Society in Israel, although it's more modern, and they give us the translation hama'alaha musarit, which is a quite contemporary way to say moral virtue. It's similar to what our English translations give us, but it, it doesn't help nail down the meaning. Another common way to unlock a Hebrew concept from Greek is to cross-reference the Septuagint. Now, that's an ancient translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And so, if we can find the, the, the word areti there, we'll just see what Hebrew word is used in that verse. And we're in luck because the word areti does appear in the Septuagint. However, not in the same context. Four times in Isaiah, it's used to translate the Hebrew word tehilah referring to the praise and majesty of God, and two other times it's used for the word hod, referring again to glory and majesty, these do not appear to be the the character traits that Shimon intends for us to develop. So, we have to try something else. What if we just try exploring the meaning of the word as a Greek word and see if there is a Hebrew concept that fits? Many languages have words that can't be translated into English. Uh, Well, it's not that they can't be translated at all, just not very succinctly. Uh, For example, there's the Hebrew word titchadesh, which you say to someone who just bought or received a new thing. Uh, It means may the new thing that you just got spark revitalization and enjoyment in your life. And then there's the Yiddish word shlamazel, which means a person who suffers from chronic misfortune. Uh, then there's the Italian word culaccino, which can mean the drop, droplet left on the inside of a glass once the beverage is finished. <laughs> the Greek word areti is, some, is something like this. It's a big part of ancient Greek culture. It's best encapsulated by the old U.S. Army recruitment slogan, be all that you can be. It, it's, it started out in the days of the old Greek philosophers as encapsulating the virtue of fulfilling your role in civic life, to be a, a model citizen, a benefit to society and upstanding in the community. And later it became more personalized and the Greeks saw it as living up to one's personal potential, to be the best darn person you could be as derived from your faculties of reason and human knowledge. It was considered the highest good possible, you know, the goal of life, to say you've done your very best. If you were an athlete, you gave it all. You gave it your all on the track um, or the arena. And if you were a craftsman, you mastered the trade and you put your heart and soul into your work. And this is where the translation excellence comes from. Areti means that you excel at what you do. And if you're an accountant, you might even excel at Excel. But is that really what Shimon Kepha is getting at? Greek ideals, philosophy? This doesn't match the personality of Peter as we know him. But what about other Jewish literature in Greek? How did they use the word? And, And this is where we finally hit the mother load. Josephus the Jewish historian from the first century uses the word areti almost 300 times in his works. So here's one example from antiquities. Josephus explains, Moses deemed it exceedingly necessary that he who would conduct his own life well and give laws to others in the first place should consider the divine nature and upon the contemplation of God's operations should thereby imitate the best of all patterns. So, as, so far as it is possible for human nature to do so and to endeavor to follow after it. Neither could the legislator himself have a right mind without such a contemplation, nor would anything he should write tend to the promotion of areti in his readers. I, I mean, unless they first be taught, first of all, that God is the father and Lord of all things and sees all things and that there he bestows a happy life upon those who follow him, but plunges such as do not walk in the paths paths of areti into inevitable miseries. Okay, in other words, to to Josephus, true areti is not something that comes from human reason, as the philosophers claimed. It derives from the awareness that God rules over all and is involved in humanity that exact definition of faith that we saw before. Um, And to Josephus, Areti means to observe who God is and to seek to imitate his conduct, to to walk in his ways. Now, uh, Philo of Alexandria was a a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher. And he's perhaps the, the, the first attempt to express Judaism through the lens of Greek philosophy. And he uses the term almost a thousand times in his works. And even as a Hellenist, his understanding of areti was not like the Greeks. Here's how he puts it. God therefore plants, implants earthly areti within humanity as a mirror image of the heavenly areti. For taking pity on humanity and recognizing our susceptibility to countless hardships, he firmly planted earthly areti as a support and defense against the ailments of the soul. This areti is an imitation of the heavenly primordial wisdom which he calls by various names. Now, areti is metaphorically referred to as a garden, and the appropriate place for the garden is Eden, which means delight. The ideal growing conditions for areti are peace, tranquility, and happiness, which embody delight. Okay, that's a little bit more mystical than Josephus, but they share some things in common. Uh, to, To Philo, Areti is the image of God planted within the human mind, which is our responsibility to cultivate, like Adam was told to tend the Garden of Eden. Incidentally, Philo and the Rambam agree that the image of God means the capacity for rational thought. So, just as God has rational thought, he created human beings in his image, meaning with the ability to reason, unlike the animals. So, in any case, both Philo and Josephus see Areti as living a life of imitation of our creator, a life guided by the Torah. And this matches very well what we see in 2 Peter. Take a look at verses 3 and 4, which lead up to our list. It says, His divine power... "...has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and areti, to his own glory and areti, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." Aha. Okay, so Peter's concept of Areti seems to line up with Josephus and and Philo that Areti is the divine image within us that enables us to transcend animalistic impulses and and thereby receive God's gifts. Okay, do you remember the Maccabees? They're the heroes of the Hanukkah story, you know, the the rebels in a time of intense persecution. They were anti-Hellenists resisting assimilation at all costs. But ironically, their stories are preserved for us in the Greek language. And and again, the books of the Maccabees use the word reti several times, and they give it a slightly different sense from both Josephus and Philo. One sad story of persecution appears both in Maccabees and in the Talmud and Midrash, and and it involves a woman whose seven sons were tortured to death by the tyrant before her very eyes. And the sons would be set free if only they would deny God by eating pork. Not only did they refuse, but they taunted their executioners. Let me read you a section, the first son's response to being tortured. Most abominable tyrant... Enemy of heavenly justice, savage of mind, you are mangling me in this manner, not because I'm a murderer or as one who acts impiously, but because I keep the divine Torah. And when the guard said, Agree to eat so that you may be released from the tortures, he replied, You abominable lackeys, your wheel is not so powerful as to strangle my reason." Cut my limbs, burn my flesh, and twist my joints. Through all these tortures, I will convince you that the sons of the Hebrews alone are invincible where areti is concerned. In other words, he's saying, You think you Greeks have mastered areti? You give it your all, conquering your animal impulses? (laughs) There is perhaps no stronger animalistic impulse than to preserve one's own life. And through our faith and fear of God, we have conquered even this. You you Greeks have nothing compared to the invincible uh, Jewish spirit. Now, throughout the books of Maccabees, um, areti is submission to the service of God, no matter what it may cost or what the temptation might be. It arises from our inviolable faith that there is a God who meets out justice and who will pay us what we deserve. Now, if you truly believe that Hashem is real and rewards those who seek Him, then the most rational thing to do is to serve Him, even in the face of overwhelming persecution and the cost of your life. Wisdom of Solomon also uses the word areti in a similar way to Maccabees. Wisdom 4.1 says, It's better to be childless and yet have areti, for in the memory of areti is immortality because it is recognized both by God and by mortals. Now, this is another common theme of areti. It's acknowledged both by God and by man. And this reminds me of an unusual saying in in Pirkei Avot uh, chapter 2, Mishnah 1. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi said, which is the straight path that a person should choose for himself? Whichever path is that is tiferet for the person adopting it, and Tiferet, to him from other people. This is a strange use of the word Tiferet, unique in all other Jewish literature. It, it, it normally means beauty, majesty, glory, balance. Here it seems to mean something like virtue. Is Tiferet here an attempt to translate Areti? They even kind of sound the same. Tiferet, Areti. And listen to the continuation of this saying from Rabbi Yehuda Hanassi, And be careful with a light commandment as with a heavy one, for you do not know the reward for the fulfillment of the commandments. And cal- also calculate the cost of keeping a commandment against its reward and the reward of a transgression against its cost. Apply your mind to three things and you will not come into the clutches of sin. Know what there is above you, an eye that sees, an ear that hears, and all your deeds are written in a book. Now, this whole Mishnah encapsulates the idea of areti, combining unwavering faith and fear of God with our unique human gift of rational thought, resulting in our our proper orientation on a path of goodness no matter what happens. So, areti is something that happens in your heart. Remember, in Jewish and biblical symbolism, the heart is the mind and will. It's not your emotional faculties. Areti gives you the will to do what is good and right because you recognize the benefit beyond this world. Okay, well, I've been holding something out on you. Uh, there is another great Jewish source for understanding the meaning of Areti. Uh, Paul uses it in Philippians 4.8. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any areti, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, this accords with the idea that areti is rooted in thought, meaning once again that our responsibility is to make use of our God-given rational mind to take control of even our thoughts and impulses and subject them to God's will. Okay, I, th- I think that by now the concept of areti has begun to crystallize for us, but we have yet to place it within a Jewish vocabulary. I mean, if this really is a Jewish concept, one would think that we would be able to ditch the Greek word for something in Hebrew and and then see how the concept flows through throughout Jewish literature. Remember how I mentioned before that, that Philo, the, the Hellenist Jewish philosopher from the first century— and Rambam, the, one of the most uh, significant Jewish thinkers of all time who lived more than a thousand years after Philo, they both agreed that human reason is the image of God. Well, Rambam, who was also influenced by Greek philosophy, uh, might be the bridge we need to locate this concept within Jewish thought. You remember uh, Pir Ke'avot, The Ethics of the Fathers, it's a fantastic ancient text. I quoted it just a little while ago, um, but it's perhaps the one rabbinic text I would want every Christian to read, let alone Messianic Jews and Gentiles. The Rambam wrote a commentary on Pirkei Avot, as well as an extensive introduction called Shmona Parakim, or eight chapters. So in this introduction, the Rambam gets a, a bit sciency about the nefesh, the, the human soul, or the, the way that he analyzes it, the psyche, or the inner makeup of the human mind, which he divides into five components. Uh, I'm not gonna get into detail on that right now, but he then explains that the moral virtues and vices exists specifically within the appetite component, that the function that causes us to crave something or to feel repulsed by it. And this is where the midot, that the ethical character traits exist. And in Rambam's view, these traits turn negative if they are either deficient or exaggerated. Well, he brings all this up in his commentary on one specific passage of Pirkei Avot, which I will quote to you in a second. But the Rambam explains that philosophers and physicians all know very well that the appetite component of the nefesh exists within the heart. Now, whether that's Literally, physiologically true is not important, but it provides for us a link between the concept of areti and how it's expressed in Judaism. And and here's the passage from Pirkei Avot that uh, the Rambam associates with virtue. And Pirkei Avot, it's either 2.9 or 2.13, depending on your version. It says, uh, Rabban Yohanan ben Zakkai, who, by the way, was a contemporary of the apostles, um, instructed his disciples. Go out and see which is the straight path to which a person must hold. What is the straight path? You might notice that this is the exact same question that I, in the quote that I brought up previously, where Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi answered, Tiferet, and it sounded a lot like Areti. But this time it's Yohanan ben Zakkai, he's asking his disciples, and in the mission, in the, the, the version of this Mishnah cited in um, Avoti Rabbi, Rabbi Natan, Yochanan ben Zakkai even says, go out and see which is the good path that a person must hold to enter the world to come. So what is the entrance to the eternal kingdom? Okay, well, let's look at the answers his disciples gave. Rabbi Eliezer said, a good eye, you know, which means uh, generosity and, and goodwill toward others. Uh, Rabbi Yehoshua said, a good friend. Rabbi Yose said, "A good neighbor." Rabbi Shimon said, "Anticipating the outcome, you know, meaning realizing the result of your actions." Rabbi Elazar said, "A good heart." Their master, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, said, "I prefer the words of, of Elazar ben Arach over the rest of your words because your words are included in his words." And there we have it. Areti is best articulated as having a good. Heart, lev tov. A good heart is the source of all proper behavior, including generosity, friendly connection, considerate neighborliness, and long-term vision. A proper heart is a consistent theme throughout the scriptures. And this week's Parsha instructs us to love God with all your heart, which the sages take to mean not only with your spiritual impulses, but you must even convince your animalistic impulses to love God. And the next verses tell us that these words must be on your heart. Later, the the, the, Torah's pro, the Torah promises Israel that he will circumcise their hearts. Ezekiel prophesies that, that God will take out Israel's stony heart and replace it with the heart of flesh. King David prayed that God would create in him a lev tahor, a pure heart. And he told us that ascending the hill of Hashem and standing in his holy place requires being pure in heart. Proverbs 4.23 teaches, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. From it flow the springs of life. Our master taught, uh, Yeshua taught extensively about the importance of a good heart. In Luke 6 uh, verses 43 to 45, he says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. In other words, if your deeds and words are like fruit, then your heart is like the tree. Just as there is no separation between a tree and fruit, but they're both the same plant, there's no separation between the heart and deeds because the heart is where your impulses, faith, and rational mind compete to determine what you're going to do. Our master taught in Matthew 5:19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Corresponding to this connection between the thoughts and deeds, where to fill in properly that to fill in on the arm must incline toward the heart the arm represents a person's deeds and yet it also represents the heart because a person's heart ultimately drives his hands this helps us understand why the good heart must come before knowledge it gives that knowledge context and direction pirkei avot records a saying from hanina ben dosa And this this is in Pirkei uh, Avot 3.9 or 3.11, depending on which version you're reading. He says, anyone whose fear of sin comes before his wisdom, his wisdom will endure. But anyone whose wisdom comes before his fear of sin, his wisdom will not endure. True wisdom existed before we were born. But there's a proper sequence in developing our character, which... Maybe why, even though uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers come before Deuteronomy, we still equip ourselves with the arm to fill in first, before our head to fill in. Our fear of sin, our faith, our good heart provide context for the knowledge that we hope to gain. Now, how can a person cultivate a lev tov, a good and pure heart? Well, there are a few practical steps we can take. First, follow the model of King David who offered a seer prayer of teshuva, of repentance, when the flaws in his heart became clear to him. He prayed in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The Kutzker Rebbe derives from this verse the idea that anyone who thinks he already has a pure heart certainly does not. And the, the words of Jeremiah 17:9 seem to confirm this. You know, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So go ahead and and pray that uh, God will transform your heart. It's a promise of the new covenant. So let Hashem know that it's something that you want today. Another piece of advice you can take uh, to develop a good heart is offered by the Harim, who said that a good heart can only exist when a person has no attachment at all to this world. That means that to develop a good heart, you, you have to remain focused on the kingdom. Don't be clingy to the physical aspects of this world. It's not your home. Let your rational mind combine with faith to help you see beyond the immediate temptation of gratification. And a final piece of advice is to learn Musar. Musar is the area of Jewish teaching that focuses on personal improvement and spiritual growth. And that's what we're doing right now. So good job, keep it up. But but don't limit it to these sessions. This is a lifelong practice. Don't just passively w- passively wait for Musar lessons to come your way. Actively seek out knowledge in this area. Read a book, <laughs> engage in study. Own it for yourself. It's your, your life and your mission to transform yourself and enter the kingdom. Okay, I want to bless you all, and I'd ask you to bless me in return that God would grant each one of us a pure heart, a good heart producing good fruit, good thoughts, good deeds, and actions that are pleasing both in the sight of God and in the sight of everyone we encounter. Shabbat Shalom. Take on my yoke And learn from it And find rest for your soul